Hi, I'm David Freudberg, the host of Humankind. People sometimes ask about the big picture of our work. Why do we present these programs? The answer is we're trying to cultivate a more cohesive sense of community. And our vision of community is based on personal ideals and values, such as compassion, generosity, equality, and civility. We aim to serve the large and growing audience of people who seek a positive alternative to media negativity and exploitation. And we strive to shed light on solutions, not just problems. If you resonate with this vision, you can support us at humanmedia.org and click How You Can Help at the top of our homepage. Thank you. Coming up on a Humankind special, will there be prosecutions for Russian atrocities in Mariupol, Bucha, and elsewhere in Ukraine? You may remember I got criticized for calling Putin a war criminal. He is a war criminal. And we have to gather all the detail so this can be an actual have a war crime trial. This guy is brutal, and everyone's seen it. The International Criminal Court in The Hague has opened an investigation into the wanton attacks on men, women, and children. The Ukrainian government has called for a special tribunal, like those convened for Yugoslavia and Rwanda and earlier at Nuremberg. We'll look at the history of these courts, how they operate, and the results. Will the civilians of Ukraine receive justice? I'm David Freudberg. Stay with us for Humankind. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston. This special project, The Rights of Civilians, is supported by the Humankind Program Fund. Can the rule of law help to limit the worst horrors of war and hold perpetrators accountable? You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. What are the consequences when a country violates international human rights law? We've seen videos of Russian forces moving exceptionally lethal weaponry into Ukraine. That includes cluster munitions and vacuum bombs, which are banned under the Geneva Convention. Linda Thomas-Greenfield is U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations. To the Russian protesters, I say thank you. Thank you for your bravery. To the Russian soldiers sent to the front lines of an unjust, unnecessary war, I say, your leaders are lying to you. Do not commit war crimes. Do everything you can to put down your weapons and leave Ukraine. A worker surveys the wreckage at Maternity Hospital Number 3 in Mariupol, Ukraine. It had been bombed by the Russian Air Force in March 2022. Four people died, at least 16 were injured in the terror attack. It's hard to imagine a more brazen violation of human rights and of international law. Millions of refugees have fled their homes in Ukraine in a sea of misery. In The Hague, an official investigation into possible war crimes has been opened at the International Criminal Court. Prosecutor Karim Khan spoke to CNN. 
that in the former Yugoslavia, many people thought there could be no uh, accountability. And we saw, despite many naysayers, that uh, cases were brought in terms of whether it's Karadic or Maladic or uh, in Rwanda, again, Jean Cabanda, the former prime minister, uh, in Charles Taylor in the special court for Sierra Leone. We see 20, 30 years after the event in Cambodia, uh, the quest for justice was realised, uh, however imperfect, in the extraordinary chambers of the court of Cambodia. We don't want to wait that long. The International Criminal Court, or ICC, began operation in 2002. It was set up to prosecute those who commit the kinds of savage acts the world has watched unfold in Ukraine. It's a violation of international law to assault civilians, to bomb their homes, to attack hospitals and kindergartens, to shell nuclear power plants. Although the biggest nations have not signed on to the court, including the U.S., over 120 countries are now members. Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina. The court is designed to bring justice to those where there is no rule of law to bring justice to them. So the first thing you have to understand or make a decision, is there a rule of law in Russia viable enough to hold Putin accountable? And the answer is no. That was the same in the Balkans. So this is a good example of where the International Criminal Court, I think, should exercise jurisdiction. Lithuania, which is a member country of the ICC, had filed a complaint against Russia shortly after the invasion of Ukraine. And although Ukraine itself is not a member, it had previously granted the court jurisdiction over all of Ukrainian territory. Thus, the ICC prosecutor has launched the investigation. Senator Graham. This is a legitimate complaint in our eyes, and we'd ask the ICC to investigate. And I want to let the Russian generals and the Russian pilots know that you follow the orders of Putin at your own peril. You can find yourself in The Hague if you drop cluster bombs on civilians, if you use vacuum bombs, if you have a scorched-earth policy to get the Ukrainian uh, people to submit to your will. So the world is watching you, not just Putin. But in a speech to the U.N. in 2018, former President Trump expressed a different view of the court. As far as America is concerned, the ICC has no jurisdiction, no legitimacy, and no authority. The ICC claims near-universal jurisdiction over the citizens of every country violating all principles of justice, fairness, and due process. We will never surrender America's sovereignty to an unelected, unaccountable, global bureaucracy. A prominent case about earlier war crimes in Eastern Europe began in The Hague just months before creation of the International Criminal Court. It was the trial of Slobodan Milosevic, former president of Yugoslavia. He was sometimes called the butcher of the Balkans. The rivalry between Serbs and Muslims there had flared into fierce violence. A UN tribunal indicted Milosevic and others for acts of genocide and war crimes in Bosnia, Croatia, and Kosovo in the 1990s. We started in the Kosovo case where a number of people who came to testify were 
uh, peasants. Attorney Judith Armada reported on the trial for the Coalition for International Justice. They lived in villages in Kosovo in almost a different time period and came before the one of the most important courts in the world uh, to give their testimony. They were outside their community, so they didn't have that kind of support, and they were able to stand up to the man that they held responsible and tell him, without even an attorney mediating, because he's representing himself, but to but tell their truth in front of him. Uh, and those were incredibly moving experiences. I remember one in particular, um, this elderly man uh, who was illiterate, and he talked about his uh, son coming, his adult son coming over one morning, completely distraught and in tears, and saying, my, my family has just been killed, I have no reason to live. So his father went with him and back to the home, and they, his, his wife and children had been shot and killed by the Serbian forces. Um, and you know, he was able to, he got out, his son got out, and they lost everything and many, many relatives. Um, but what he, he came to testify, and um, Milosevic challenged him one way or another, and he, um, he was what I called, you know, sort of the voice of God. Here is this elderly man who's very slight, and his voice was so powerful, and he turned to Milosevic, and he said, I, I actually have a question for you. I just want to know... Don't you have any feelings? How can you do this to women and children? And there was, usually the judge sort of says, you know, it's not for you to ask questions, and this sort of thing. It was complete silence in the courtroom, and nothing happened. Milosevic, of course, didn't respond to that at all. But it was incredibly moving, and it was an opportunity for somebody, um, to, well, to see the power of uh, an individual and uh, just that individual power to stand up to this incredible evil in some ways. It was very moving. He had his day in court. He, he had his day in court, and others had their day in court because of him, because he was able to do that. He stood up to the man who had primary responsibility for, what, for them losing their homes and their families and their friends and their way of life, and saying to him, you know, you, you are responsible, you are a human being, and how could you? How can you do that? The question that we all wonder, how can you do that? You know, how can you kill a baby? We're exploring international humanitarian law, which is intended to protect innocent people who become victims of military attacks. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. For more information on this segment, The Rights of Civilians, and to obtain audio downloads or CDs, please visit humanmedia.org. The foundation for later war crimes prosecutions was laid in the 1940s at the end of World War II. The major allies convened courts in Nuremberg, Germany and Tokyo, Japan. The Nuremberg Tribunal affirmed the principle of personal accountability, that individuals could be held criminally responsible for their actions during war. 
the Nazis were charged with crimes against peace and crimes against humanity. The late Walter Cronkite covered the proceedings as a young reporter. Mr. Cronkite, would you take us back to 1946 and describe the scene of the Nuremberg Tribunal in which the Nazi leaders were on trial for their lives? The atmosphere at Nuremberg with the trial of the leading Nazis, the first trial, uh, was uh, uh, very solemn, very gray cosmetically. Uh, the old Nuremberg courthouse building, which was used, was rather tired. The uh, trial itself was in a fairly large hall with uh, uh, stands for probably a couple of hundred spectators at one end. Uh, over on one side of the long hall sat the 21 defendants, uh, led in every morning and took their place in the two, two rows. Uh, and then uh, across from them sat the uh, judges from the four nations, the, the principal allies, uh, in uh, the two of each from each of the nations. In the center was the witness chair, uh, a, a screen with, with uh, some maps and other things, uh, pictures of the occupation, pictures of the concentration camps later were shown. Uh, the drama was high when these uh, arch criminals of our time were marched in for the first time and we had a look at them head on, as it were, as they took their place in the dock. I will now call upon the defendants to plead guilty or not guilty to the charges against them. Hermann Wilhelm Göring. Before I ask the Frage des Gerichtshofes beantworte, ob ich mich schuldig oder nicht schuldig bekenne, I informed the court, the, the court that defendants were not entitled to make a statement. You must plead guilty or not guilty. Bekenne mich im Sinne der Anklage nicht schuldig. Rudolf Hess. Nein. That will be entered as a plea of not guilty. Joachim. As I said, I. I don't think I've ever spit in my life, but somehow or other, it just the urge was was there to spit on them if I could. Uh, it uh, it uh, that that came and went as the trial went on, as the testimony got more and more graphic. The defendants were charged with committing atrocious mass murders of innocent men, women, and children during the fevered Nazi quest to rule the world. When Germany was led into the darkness by the rhetoric of Adolf Hitler. The chief American prosecutor at the Nuremberg Military Tribunal was Robert Jackson, a sitting justice on leave from the U.S. Supreme Court. Jackson decried the Nazi persecution of Jews and Catholics. What makes this inquest significant? is that these prisoners represent sinister influences that will lurk in the world long after their bodies have returned to dust. We will show them to be the living symbols of racial hatreds, terrorism, and of violence, and of the arrogance and cruelty of power. Jackson said the countries which came together to put top Nazi generals on trial for barbaric acts 
were bowing to a higher order of global justice. If these men are the first war leaders of a defeated nation to be prosecuted in the name of the law, they are also the first to be given a chance to plead for their lives in the name of the law. They do have a fair opportunity to defend themselves. Represented here by able counsel who have shown their capacity to handle their case with credit. And these men now enjoy a favor which when in power they rarely extended even to their fellow countrymen. Despite the fact that public opinion may already condemn their acts, we agree here that they must be given a presumption of innocence and we accept the burden of proving criminal acts and the responsibility of each of these defendants for their commission. The Nuremberg Tribunal sought to inscribe for history an accurate account of Nazi crimes. Among those compiling the record was a brilliant 26-year-old Army Corporal Benjamin Ferenz. He had recently graduated from Harvard Law School, where he delved into a study of war crimes. Ben was assigned the grim task of collecting evidence at Nazi concentration camps as they were being liberated by the Allies. I came in with the troops as soon as they got in because you have to move quickly before the rec records are destroyed. And, uh, of course, I saw all the horrors that have been depicted partly uh, on television and film. Uh, including, you know, crematoria still going, the bodies lying around, you don't know if they're dead or alive. And uh, uh, my job then was to get in and preserve the evidence of those crimes as quickly as possible, which meant hitting the uh, Schreibstube, the office where the records were kept, and seizing the records immediately. For example, in Buchenwald, I recall capturing the Totenbücher, which are the death registries of everybody who was there. I managed to get the records of all the SS men who'd been in the camp. Sometimes there are pictures of them as well, and the periods in which they'd been there, uh, and the rank and the positions they held in the camp. And of course, statements from those witnesses that were still able to testify. Uh, these were immediately recorded, writing, and we didn't have the recording devices we have today. And then I'd move on immediately to the next camp, and uh, just keep going as fast as I could so that I could get as many camps as possible. But um, I managed somehow to build up a mental shield to preserve my sanity uh, by just getting in and doing my job and, and moving on. Does a person exposed to enough of this evidence, of these atrocities, of these horrors, of, of these unthinkable crimes, eventually just become numb to it? You have to become numb to it. You have to become numb to it immediately. Otherwise, you go out of your mind. Uh, I created a, a process whereby my mind didn't accept what my eyes saw. And uh, without that, it could not have been possible to go on. You can't spend your time crying and wailing and screaming for, for revenge. There was a job to do, and, and, and you have to go on and do it, and you have to go on living. Ben Ferenz went on to become lead prosecutor at one of the Nuremberg trials. In all, 177 defendants were charged for Nazi crimes. Most were convicted. 24 were executed.
1993, the UN Security Council established the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. It met in a converted insurance company building in The Hague. In the course of more than a dozen years, over 150 defendants were indicted. One was Dusko Tadic, a Bosnian Serb and a local hoodlum. His trial involved 125 witnesses. Presiding was Gabriel Kirk McDonald, an American federal judge. Tadic was convicted and sentenced for grotesque war crimes during the Bosnian conflict. Judge McDonald. On the 7th of May, 1997, the trial chamber rendered its opinion and judgment, unanimously finding you guilty of serious violations of international humanitarian law. The chamber found that on 10 separate occasions, you beat, stabbed, and kicked 19 Muslim men in Khazarats, the Priador barracks, and the Ormaska and Karaturm camps and you aided and abetted in the beating of one Muslim prisoner and the sexual mutilation of another at the Armaska camp. Further, the trial chamber found that you killed two Muslim men in Khazarats by slitting their throats. You played an active part in the attack on Khazarats, its violent ethnic cleansing and the forced expulsion of villagers from Sivsky and Yashichki. You committed these offenses intentionally and with sadistic brutality. Why? The trial chamber recognizes that these crimes were committed during an armed conflict, and it acknowledges the virulent propaganda that recalled real and imagined abuses by one religious group against the other. You responded to this campaign, however, and you must bear responsibility for your criminal conduct. The trial chamber imposes on you, Diskotadich, the following penalties. Would you please rise, Mr. Tadich? As to counts 10 and 11 for inhumane treatment as a crime against humanity, the trial chamber sentences you, Dusko Tadic, to 10 years imprisonment. For cruel treatment as a violation of the laws or customs of war, the trial chamber sentences you, Dusko Tadic, to nine years imprisonment. As to count one, for various acts of persecution as a crime against humanity, including the killing of Osman Besage and Eden Besage, the trial chamber sentences you, Dusko Tadic, to 20 years imprisonment. About four years after Tadic was sentenced, Slobodan Milosevic was arrested by Yugoslav authorities to face a war crimes trial in The Hague. An estimated 200,000 people had died in the Balkan War. Ethnic hatreds were deliberately fanned by the leaders. Milosevic decided to serve as his own lawyer at the tribunal. When I visited the trial in late 2002, he appeared to me a man consumed by rage. 
Judith Armada recalled a young soldier who volunteered to testify about events when he was 20 years old. He was ordered with some of his, uh, maybe three other guys, three other soldiers, to um, shoot a group of people, maybe eight or ten of them, it, all civilians, women and children, and one included a baby. And he did. He shot him. And he killed the baby. And he said, um, he came, actually came forward. He called the prosecutor up and said, I want to testify. And he said, I did this. I, you know, I carry this with me. I have had not one night of sleep since that happened. I always hear that baby screaming. And, you know, and he was also able to turn to Milosevic and said, you did this, and you did this to me, and you did it to those babies. You did it to those people, and you need to be held responsible. Now, that, to me, justifies the whole process. And was there any visible reaction by Milosevic, any recognition that he bears culpability for those actions? None. None. No. The case of Slobodan Milosevic came to a sudden end when he was found dead in his cell of an apparent heart attack at age 64. I remember watching the blue and white United Nations flag fluttering from a pole in The Hague. It was outside the courthouse where the tribunals for crimes in the former Yugoslavia and also Rwanda operated. I made my way through security to Judge McDonald's chambers. I think it's a certain catharsis uh, for the victim to, to come to court and to testify. Uh, he or she gets it off his chest. You mean it, it empowers the victim? It empowers them, but I think it emboldens them also. It, it allows them to go forward and lead, lead their life in a better way because they feel like, and, I, and again, it's my opinion, they feel like that they're part of, of a system that responds to crimes not by committing more crimes, not by meeting out vengeance, but but by the application of the rule of law. So I think that encourages them to go back, perhaps, to their own community and say, you know what, maybe there's another way. I was part of this process, and I was able to, to look the accused in the eye and say to the accused and say to the judges what had transpired. And maybe that is something that's transferred, and it, it's, you don't just lose it when you leave the, the, the uh, courtroom. There must have been times when it was extremely difficult and uncomfortable for you to sit on that bench. Of course. And listen to the testimony about these atrocities committed in the Balkans in, in the 1990s. Sure. Sure, it was. But I was a judge before, and you, you have to have patience, I think. That's the first thing that most judges have to have, is patience. Um, you have to have something that is short of detachment, I think. Uh, I don't want to think that I detach totally from what happens to my fellow human beings. And I say my fellow human beings to Americans who may think that people in the former, what's going on in the former Yugoslavia or in Rwanda has nothing to do with them. It has everything to do with us. I felt it. Were, were there times when you could just not believe 
Of course. That that human beings yeah. can can sink oh, to yeah. such depths. Yeah. Or you read statements. When I confirm so many indictments, I can't believe it. I can't even imagine where people get the idea. When you hear stories of people uh, have a man, Mr. Alich, having to go while he was in the Armaska detention camp and get his son to bring his son to be beaten. Son, you have to come out. They want you. His son comes out. And his son says to him, according to Mr. Alich, as, as he was being taken away, he said, Father, Father, take care of my children. And you're listening to this, and you, you have to listen, pay attention, <laughs> and act as a judge. But I'm a human being. Uh, when you listen uh, to a woman who, 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 who has lost 35 members of her family and who's shown pictures by the prosecution, who is this? This is my uncle, this is my brother, this is my husband. Of course it touches you. But as a trained judge, you have to understand that you have to listen to the testimony, comprehend the testimony, listen for any objections that lawyers might have, and think about how you're going to rule on those objections. And at the same time, at the same time, and this is very important, be patient, hold off making any determination until all of the evidence is in because of the presumption of innocence. Coming up, a closer look at the International Criminal Court when the rights of civilians continues on humankind in a moment. The executive producer is David Freudberg. Please subscribe to our free weekly podcast. The title is Humankind on Public Radio. You can find it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NPR One, and all major podcast services, as well as through our website. Again, the podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you'd like to support our program, please visit humankindpodcast.org. And at the top, click on How You Can Help. Thank you.